This morning's reading comes from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were, were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great, city of the, the great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. 
the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, College Church. My name is V, and I've been on staff here um, since August. And um, if you have been following along with the Revelation series this fall, I hope that you've been challenged and encouraged. It's been such a wonderful sermon series for me, and although we're, I'm glad that we're marching towards the end of the series and finishing the book on a really high note, I'm honestly a little bit sad that it is ending. Before we dive into the text, let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be a pleasing and fragrant offering in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week, we heard Pastor Bill preach on Revelation 19 and 20. Bill exhorted us to remember our identity as being betrothed to Christ and to anticipate the great wedding day. He also talked about the great war, which, in fact, has already been won by King Jesus. The purpose of this Revelation series is not to scare us or make us afraid. The point of Revelation is to embolden our confidence and amplify our hope in our victorious King. John writes Revelation because he wants to comfort us and nurture our hope for the future. But John also knows that life is hard and suffering is real. He was in prison himself on the island of Patmos. He was writing to an oppressed minority that was being persecuted and was at risk of being martyred. Before we dive into the text of Revelation 21, I'd like for you to ponder these two questions. How do we hold both hope and lament together? And how do we cultivate hope without glossing over the harsh realities of life. This morning, I want us to immerse ourselves in John's glorious visions of the new um, creation and the new earth and see what it communicates to us um, about God's intentions for his creation. In this text, we get to catch a glimpse of the new heaven and the new earth. Christians often believe that when the millennium is over, we'll all get swooped up into the sky and transported to this new and improved location elsewhere. But Revelation 21 is telling us the opposite. Verse 2 informs us that the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God. It will be a convergent space where heaven and earth finally meet. There's a line in the song, How He Loves, by John Mark McMillan, that depicts this image. So heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss, and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. We often replace the sloppy wet kiss with the unforeseen kiss, but the singer purposefully used the phrase sloppy wet kiss because the two kingdoms converge in such a way that is both beautiful, intimate, yet incredibly sloppy, messy, and oh, so awkward. 
We expect heaven to be a glorious ending, but in fact, it is a fresh beginning. The ruined and tainted earth will finally be redeemed, restored, and made new. John depicts the New Jerusalem not as an escape from this broken world, but as the renewal of it. Heaven comes down and fills the earth, this earth. Verse 3 helps us picture this reality with God himself. Look, behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. This brings us all the way back to John 1, verse 14, when the disciple wrote, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This has always been God's goal and vision all along from the very beginning, dwelling with us in a covenantal and faithful relationship where we get to live and thrive in freedom under the ruling of a good and humble king. The New Jerusalem is described as shining with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The city is made of pure gold, surrounded by a high wall with 12 gates made of pearls and angels at the gates. The foundations of the wall are adorned with every kind of precious stone. The city is measured and laid out like a square. These visions are meant for us to understand that heaven is an intricate system of completions with striking visual features such as symmetry, light, and prosperity. Heaven is described geometrically as a cube. To give you a clear visual of the size, the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple in 1 Kings is 27,000 cubic feet, while the size of the New Jerusalem is over 2.6 billion cubic miles of glorious space. The point is to stagger us with the size and help us sense the enormous presence in this new creation. I know that some of you might be wrestling with God and with your faith right now. Whether it's because you grew up in a strict religious household with lots of rules and restrictions, or because the church has wounded you and burns you out. I am truly sorry. I would love for you to read this text and imagine a spacious place where you will have ample room to stretch endlessly to breathe freely, to play joyfully, to love extravagantly, to grow effortlessly, and to be yourself fully. You won't ever have to feel suffocated, compressed, or constricted anymore. Our gentle and lowly God is extending his generous invitation to you, those who are weary and burdened, to come and rest with him, for his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Verse 25 says that the gates will never be shut. Gates are often used to enhance security, privacy, and to keep us away from dangers. John is implying that there will be no more closed gates. God has removed all the threats. When we are secure in our identity as his beloved, we'll be able to fellowship in perfect peace, justice, and joy with God, and with each other. The holy city is also depicted as a bride adorned beautifully for her husband. If you've ever been to a wedding, you probably know that feeling of anticipation um, 
when everyone is eagerly waiting and expecting the bride to walk down the aisle. If we in the audience can stand in awe looking at the bride, can you imagine how much more the bridegroom would be captivated by the sight of his soon-to-be wife? How much more would he be mesmerized by her elegance and beauty, both inside and out? It's such an intimate and symbolic moment. Now let's put ourselves in the place of the bride. Does it make you feel a little bit uncomfortable? You may look around and not perceive the church to be a beautiful bride right now. You may struggle with the American church being worn out, full of hypocrisy and brokenness. You may lack faith that we as a church would be able to limp towards the altar. But this promise is still true for us as his body. Someday soon, the church will dress in fine linen, bright and clean, walking down the aisles towards her bridegroom. Someday soon, Christ will look at us, his bride, with much tenderness, pride, admiration, and deep affection. Someday soon, we will be fully accepted and joyfully received by Christ in all of our strengths and quirks. Friends, take heart. Someday soon, we will be redeemed, blameless, and ready for our bridegroom. One unique feature of the new holy city is that there will no longer be any sea in verse 1. In the ancient world, the sea represents chaos, separation, wickedness, and dangers. There are hidden terrors in the deep. In the Old Testament, for instance, Isaiah 57, verse 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. Or in Psalm 89, verse 9, you rule over the searching sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. In the New Testament, we recall the story of Jesus calming the sea while he was on a boat with his disciple. In Mark 4, verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Again, in the book of Revelation, the sea is the source of a very powerful beast and the place of the dead. In Revelation 13, verse 1, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. And in Revelation 20, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. So for John to say that there will be no more sea is to imply that there will be no more chaos, wickedness, or evil. No more. In Revelation 4 and 5, the glassy sea means that Jesus has subdued the power of chaos so that we can stand on it. Here in Revelation 21, we see that there's no more chaos to be stopped. Similar to the sea, darkness often represents evil and danger. In the same way that there will no longer be any sea, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Verse 23. It means that there is no more shadow or darkness, and there will be no more night. Heaven is depicted as light-filled. Without light, we cannot see anything at all. Without light, we are plunged into the dark night of the soul. 
Without light, we will not be able to behold the beauty of the precious and radiant stones that adorn the city. Friends, be encouraged. New life with God will be so colorful and extravagant, overflowing out of his grace and love for us like a kaleidoscopic blaze of dazzling colors. This vision is why we continue to run this race with faithful endurance towards the end. There will also be no more temple because the Lord God and the Lamb are his temple. Verse 22. God's presence will permeate every nook and cranny of this new creation. The whole earth will be filled with his glory. Everything is holy, sacred, shalom, and very, very good. There will no longer be any distance or separation between God and his people. We will never ever have to feel like our prayers are bouncing off the walls and the ceilings in a confined room or our cries to God are disappearing into thin air. I hope that this would encourage you to not give in and to not give up. One day we will share an unfettered intimacy with God when he dwells among us in the new creation. Our eternal joy will go hand in hand with our eternal worship of King Jesus. We will see God face to face and dwell in his loving presence forever. Aren't these visions so good and perfect? And don't we all want to get there as soon as we can? I'd like to do a little imagination exercise with you. So let's close your eyes for a moment and picture a place where you find yourself most fully alive and at peace, where all the troubles of the world melt away and your stacked up piles of dirty dishes are not right in front of you. I know that can trigger a lot of anxiety for us. So let's picture a place where you were able to experience God's presence most intimately. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. One more time, deep breath in and deep breath out. Now you can open your eyes. We're back to reality. You're sitting in college church or at home watching the live stream. Your physical body may be bothering you right now. Your mental health may be crippling at this very moment. The relationships in your life may be on the verge of breaking as I speak. There are people around you right now whose lives are broken, loved ones whose dreams have been shattered, and coworkers whose hopes have been destroyed. You have neighbors, acquaintances, and family members who have gone through tragedy after tragedy, and they are trying to pick up the pieces. Sometimes, as Christians, our knee-jerk reaction when people bring their suffering to us is to offer a very black and white perspective. That we're suffering, but it's okay. Everything is okay. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to restore all things. We'll be just fine. I know that we mean well. We want to encourage our loved ones and remind them that one day things will be fine. But sometimes our rush to bring comfort to people can feel invalidating and diminishing to their journeys through the valleys of the shadow of death. Personally, when I've experienced challenging times, people have tried to comfort me with those words and often made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. 
It felt as if they were trying to rush me towards redemption and trying to fix me instead of being present, weeping with me and sitting next to me in my pain and suffering. How can you tell me to have the perspectives of heaven when I look to my left and I see my loved one's sufferings with chronic physical pains, intense emotional distress, and impairing mental illnesses? How can you paint the picture of this unrealistic world when I look to my right and I see my brothers and sisters of colors utterly broken by the ways the world views them and treats them when I see little children breathing their last under the rubble of wars every day on social media, when I see the church turning a blind eye to wickedness and violence? How can you encourage me to fix my eyes on heavenly things when I look within myself and I see my crippling anxiety, my tendency to judge others, my selfishness, my pride, my paralyzing grief bubbling out as I can't even cry out to God for help? I'm just being honest, but sometimes it's really hard for me to believe in the vision of heaven where God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So then how do we hold up this tension of hope and lament as we wait for this promised reality in the midst of griefs and groanings that are too deep for words? It is appropriate for us to talk about waiting in this season of Advent and what it means to wait for God and wait with God. Advent is a time of waiting. But it's not just any kind of waiting, like waiting for your spouse to come home or waiting for your children to be done with, with school and go to college or waiting for your yummy food to come out in a restaurant. Advent waiting is special. It is expectant. It requires us to actively make space for it, and it is hopeful. We are waiting for our King Jesus to come back and make all things new. But you may ask, how then do we wait? First, we wait expectantly. I've never been a mom, obviously, but I would love to be a mom someday. And I often wonder what it would take to become a mother. I think about the journey and the different stages of pregnancy, how beautiful yet messy the whole thing is. I think of the women who are waiting to become mothers as they mother through morning sickness, notice their stomachs begin to swell, await feeling the first kicks, and many, many more. They possibly could not anticipate that motherhood would turn their life upside down in the most complicated yet wonderful ways. Pregnant women broaden my imagination and expectation for Advent. We wait expectantly for Christ to come again, but we do not know the exact details. So we choose to wait with the anticipation that it would be something wonderful, surprising, and glorious. As we read the text, these things are promised to us. No more chaos, darkness, or threats. No more tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain. Those who are thirsty will drink from the spring of living water. The victorious ones will inherit this abundant kingdom, and they will lack nothing. Consider the original audience who received this letter from John. The church was under constant attacks as the Roman Empire ran amok and believers were being persecuted, threatened, and sometimes killed. John was trying to comfort them and uplift their spirit. But what about us today? 
As we read this text, could you imagine versions of ourselves without pride, jealousy, pettiness, arrogance, impatience, and self-absorption? Could you imagine a community where everyone is contributing their own special gift, people are sharing resources, and embracing each other's uniqueness? Could you imagine a world without hate, violence, greed, rivalry, and wars? where there will be endless shalom, peace, and wholeness. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? We currently live in the world where people are killing, people are dying, children are hurting, and we can hear them crying. But we hold these two realities in open hands and we bring our hurts to God. We wrestle with our doubts in the crunch between kingdoms while remaining faithful and trusting God unswervingly that someday soon he will restore all things, and so we wait expectantly. Second, Advent waiting requires us to actively make space for it. Waiting is not passive. We often think of waiting as unproductive or a waste of time because we are cynical and impatient creatures. We want to see our problems fixed and rush to the end result as fast as we can, but Advent waiting is in fact very slow and very active. If the church can practice Advent waiting well, we can become a powerful demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. Practicing Advent waiting includes being able to both hold hope and lament in tension with each other. Lament can furnish our hearts with holy discontent as we grieve the state of our broken world. I know that when I think about all the wrongs in the world, Sometimes it's easy for me to become numb and check out. Other times I would get really angry, cynical, and self-righteous. But those who learn to weep and lament well often become a high-octane catalyst to carry out radical justice. They tend to not give up even when they face challenges, resistance, and pushback from their culture. It is inconvenient, and it disrupts our normal life but our faith and hope in God should drive us to make changes that would transform this world. As we wait with God, we can be active and faithful participants in his plan for restoration. As we condemn evil injustices and systems of oppression, as we resist individualism, consumerism, and capitalism, as we care for the earth as part of our stewardship, as we advocate for the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized, as we love our neighbors intentionally, faithfully, and incarnationally, just as Jesus does. We trust God's grace and commit to lovingly communicating that grace to the world. We affirm that God's love is freely available to all of creation. College Church, I've only been here for three months, but I've been truly humbled and greatly impressed by our community in so many different ways. I've been so encouraged whenever I visit your small groups and witness you take care of one another, share resources among yourselves, and spur each other on in the faith. I've been challenged whenever I see our congregation engage in really hard conversations about politics, race, and confront the challenges of the American church with such open minds and soft hearts, with meekness, self-control, gentleness, humility, patience, and much compassion extended to each other. 
I've been inspired by your enthusiastic participation and generous contributions whenever there is a call to stretch outward into our local communities, whether to ensure our children are well-fed, the unhoused are accommodated, those in recovery are well-loved, and to fight against the injustices we see daily. You've recognized that this collective body is created by, nurtured by, and loved by an embodied God who came and dwelt among us through his incarnation. You've affirmed our commitment as followers of a humble king to rejecting harm, embracing liberation, and reflecting God's love through gentle correction and genuine love rather than canceling people when they mess things up. College Church, you have taken seriously the call to healing and embody God's beautiful vision of restoration in the here and in the now. You've demonstrated to be a safe community that holds each other accountable to own our mistakes, to confess our sins, to ask for forgiveness, to seek reconciliation, and to practice love in our body and in our spirit in the here and in the now. You have announced, sought after, ushered in, and borne witness to the kingdom of God in the here and in the now. Rich Velotis, one of my favorite authors and a pastor in Queens, New York, describes heaven like this. The Bible doesn't end with souls ascending to a disembodied heaven. It ends with a fully embodied heaven descending to earth. The resurrection is the good news that God in Christ is committed to the renewal reconciliation and resurrection of all things, and so should the church be. Advent is an invitation for us to hold in tension the brokenness of the world and the hope of its redemption. Elizabeth was barren, then she was pregnant. Mary's pregnancy was scandalous, yet Joseph did not divorce her. King Herod killed the innocent babes, but the savior of the world came and dwelled among us, and good news was preached to the sick, the poor, and the outcast. Light weaving and shining radiantly in darkness, piercing through the shadow of the night. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices indeed. A promise here connects with a hope there. A glimpse of heaven here on earth is seen here and there and so we actively wait. Last but not least, we wait hopefully for Christ's return. Psalm 130, um, Psalm 130 verse five says, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. The last aspect of Advent waiting is that it is hopeful. What sets us apart as God's children is that while we wait in the ugly trenches of life, we hold our hope simultaneously. God does not offer us a hope that is a momentary experience with an expiration date. He offers us a hope that is surely anchored in something real, in the real despair of this world, because he came and walked in it with us. He offers us a hope that is enduring, everlasting, and a hope that will never be destroyed. Our hope is deeply rooted in the trustworthiness of God the redemptive work of Christ, and the expectation of our future in his presence. Our hope in God comforts us in the midst of lament 
and reminds us of the incarnation, that God is with us from the beginning all the way to the hideousness of crucifixion. God's dream is to be with us, not just in eternity, but starting right here, right now. Emmanuel, God with us. In the ER, during finals, changing diapers, in prison, on the first date, during a car accident, at a graduation, in therapy, in the operating room, doing dishes, folding laundry, on the bus, at a wedding, during wars, in AA, in chemo, in recovery, at the funeral, under the collapsed buildings, today, tomorrow, on December 25th, and every single day after. Emmanuel, God with us in our joys and victories, in our pains and sufferings, in solidarity with the marginalized, the oppressed, and all victims of wars and injustices. Our hope in God emboldens us to realize that heaven is not what we wait for until the end of time or where we go when we die. Because of that, we are now able to look upon the events around us not as a hopeless evidence that God is asleep at the switch, but as the birth pangs of a new creation and a beckoning to participate in God's remaking of this earth. John writes Revelation to encourage us to not give up and to not quit. He wants to nurture our hope and build our resilience to stand firm in the Lord, to rejoice in these good and true promises, to press on towards the goal and to win the prize for which God has called heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's beautiful and glorious. We are called to live an embodied faith empowered by the Holy Spirit. We, as the whole redeemed, forgiven, and continuously restored body of Christ, are sent forth to join in making God's dream for the world a reality in the here and in the now. God not only wants to bring peace and restoration to you, but he also wants to bring peace and restoration through you to the rest of mankind. The peace that God has for you is also the peace that he wants to shine through you. N.T. Wright says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is about. We look in awe and see precisely what Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May it be so. Hallelujah. Let's pray. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 says, We don't yet see things clearly. We are squinting in a fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. God, thank you for this vision of the new creation that you've gifted us, it is so compelling and exciting to long and wait for that glorious day. The trumpets will sound and we will get to dance joyfully and freely in the presence of the King. Help us lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven and be secure in our heavenly heritage. 
We are citizens of high heaven. We are waiting the arrival of the Savior, the Master, Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthy bodies into glorious bodies like his own, who will make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill by which he is putting everything as it should be under and around him. All the limitation of our language, the brokenness of our experience, the failures of our lives will all be gone and everything will be made new. So we wait in hope and we serve you with great joy. In your tender, triumphant, and ever so glorious name we pray. Amen.